0: Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, educator, saxophonist from Sao Paulo, Brazil, Felipe Salles. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today we have a, I have the honor of having a great guest with us. I loved his latest album. And on uh, my fault, this is like the second time or third time we had to reschedule this.
1: <laughs> so sir, please introduce yourself and let's get right back, right into it. <laughs> no problem. My name is Felipe Salas and I'm a composer, conductor, saxophone player, I guess many other little things, but that, that will be the official title. A doctor of what? Um, well, I have a doctoral degree in jazz studies. In so jazz studies, okay. It could have been jazz would, history.
0: Or, oh, that's what I was asking.
1: Uh, focus, focus was on jazz composition, you uh-huh. know, but, but it, it had some aspects of uh, pedagogy and also performance. Okay. So, First of all, when did you move up here from Brazil? Uh, 1995. Um, So the last century. (laughs) Last century. And what made you actually come up here? I came to go to school. I was, uh, you know, I've been thinking about moving to the U.S. since I was about probably 16 years old. I I fell in love with playing jazz and, and studying. Um, the music and playing the music and so I had this you know fantasy this plan whatever you want to call to move here and play this music so but when I went when I when I finished high school I didn't feel like I was ready to come so I did my undergrad in Brazil in music and then I applied for a master's degree and got accepted and came in 1995 to do my master's here. Okay, so when you first come up here,
0: your opinion of the jazz scene?
1: Well, you know, I mean, every city has its own thing. I came, I wanted to go to New York, but I ended up coming to Boston to go to New England Conservatory, which was, was a good, it was a good move. You know, New York probably would have been a little too overwhelming for me at first. In Boston was a small town. It had a pretty okay scene at the time. You know, there was, uh, there's still um, Wally's there, but there's there was also Regatta Bar. There were a couple of more clubs that now don't exist anymore. So I the scene in Boston, <laughs> yeah, the scene in Boston was good at that time. You know, you could get gigs, you could play. I actually played in a club that not much later got, um, closed, but it was a legendary club in Boston called Connolly's, which was in Roxbury. That was my first gig in the U.S. was at Connolly's, which was a, uh, a club that was very traditional, like a supper club, you know, as they used to call. And people like Coltrane and all kinds of jazz musicians that passed through Boston played in that club. It was very, very traditional. And unfortunately, it closed. You know, gentrification and all uh, that stuff. It it j- turned into a parking lot.
0: Jazz is dying. That's why I say that. Yeah, a lot of well, duck closed down over here.
1: <laughs> I I hope not. I hope I hope it like you know Frank Zappa used to say is not dead. It just smells a little funny. But so hopefully it's not going to die completely. I don't. No, I, I don't mean, think it's going to die completely. But it's not. It's certainly not what we call a popular genre anymore you know but it hasn't been popular since the 50s yeah i guess bebop took care of making jazz less popular. i I had a
0: at one point i studied with this guy that was he was he was literally at pearl harbor that's how old he was right and he would teach me He was really big on big band scores which is one thing i did love about your album which we're going to get into but his whole thing was he hated charlie parker and he would say with the straightest face he was the downfall of jazz
1: i love charlie parker to be i mean i love him too i think he i think he was one of the greatest um geniuses of music in general but certainly jazz like he definitely changed the course of jazz. But yet, you know, if we're gonna get philosophical, jazz or any type of music starts popular and it has a tendency to become less and less popular as it evolves. So same thing with classical music. Classical music used to be the popular music of its day. And then now is the music of conservatories. Jazz used to be the popular music of its day. Now it's music of conservatories, I guess. If we think like that, maybe at some point, rap is going to not be popular anymore. I, I mean, don't know I really gonna think happen. it might
0: not be, because if you haven't noticed, a lot of the rap songs now, and this is what this, this is me, how he was what he was saying this when I was like 12, 13. I thought the guy was crazy. OK, let's make that clear. But this is a guy who was born in like 1926. He said that once Charlie Parker started moving it away from the dance floor and it had to be about him turning his back from the crowd and stuff like that, he said it really –
1: you saw the downfall of it from the youth. But, yeah, but I think it's also – it has other elements to it because, uh, for example, Dizzy Gillespie tried to – keep a big band going even playing more modern music playing more bebop oriented stuff but the thing is people didn't connect to it but that music was there it was impo- it, you know once the music starts existing you can't take it back you know it's 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 the way of the the world you know it's the evolution you can't you can keep on playing the stuff that was from before and many people did you know Duke Ellington was on the road with his band until 1974. Yes, you know, so you can do that, but you can't keep the music from evolving. It's it's part of what it is, you know. And I feel like um, that's a conversation I always have with, with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe my music is not meant to be, quote unquote, popular. You know, it's meant to be what it is, and then people who like it, they'll like it, and people who don't like it, won't like it. You can't, you know. Lots of people don't that, like swing music anymore. I know? agree, but just a
0: big band chart to put an album like that together, or even the radios playing big band albums like that anymore. That's just something that I've even noticed.
1: Right. Well, there's and- a whole what I call like an underground um revival of big bands you know there's lots of new large ensembles in new york and places like that but nobody is playing music for dancing they're writing music almost like uh a, a new classical like if you think of the big band as being an orchestra as being something that is more like a refined um you know a, a, a I don't want to say classical because it's not classical music, but it's like thinking about that as art music in terms of jazz, not as in dance music. Not that it cannot be both, you know. I I love rhythm. I love rhythm and I I I look into like a big part of my music is thinking about rhythm and grooves and things like that, but also combining with with the other parts, you know, that I love about the music.
0: Okay, so at least
1: just so I know,
0: in the future more, would you even consider doing more of a dancing album, like a more mainstream big band sound? Um. Well,
1: um, I think I'm not gonna say I I wouldn't consider. You know, I never say that's a no. no I think <laughs> I I would say that. You know, I played in a lot of big bands that play traditional swing music. Mm-hmm. I love playing that music. I I play a lot of it. You know, I know a lot of it, and I teach a lot of it. I just question if that is really my musical identity. You know, coming from where I came from, and and you know, being born in the era that I've been born, if it if it makes sense for me to to write music that sounds like it was done by someone else many, many decades before. You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like the music has to be uh, it's it's like a picture of who you are in a way or or where you are in a sense too. You know? And I think that's part of why eventually that naive uh, way of being american that that was in the swing era kind of kind of you know ceased to exist with bebop and all the stuff that came before there was a lot of tension going on there were wars, second world war and all kind all kinds of stuff and so i I feel like people just couldn't be that way anymore you know they had to find a way that musically expressed who they were at that moment, historically you know. So I always think about that, you know, because I'm not historically in that moment anymore. I'm here and I feel like my music should reflect that, even if it's big band music.
0: Okay. Well, let's just get into the album. Then we could go into some other
1: things. First of all, when this
0: even came across my desk, email, whatever you want to say, two names popped up right away. One, you had a trumpet player that came on the show before, Love and the Death of New Zealand. And you have a... Very famous reed player that came on your album. Can you please right. tell me how you got both of them on?
1: Well, if you're talking about, first of all, if you're talking about Nadia Nordhaus, yes. <laughs> uh, she's a she's an old friend of mine. We we went to school together. We played in many bands together. So I've known her for, I don't know, when, when did I move to New York? Probably since she's gotten to New York, I think I started, I think, uh, 2004. 2003, somewhere around there we've, so we've known each other since she's uh, arrived in New York, you know, so eventually it, it was it was something that was meant to happen you know, I feel Paquito de Rivera, who is the other person you're you're mentioning mm-hmm. um, I've been a fan all my life you know, I grew up listening to his music and I've always loved the way he played, the way he he composes and everything and 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 he's the connection with him was kind of like an accident he was playing uh at the same festival that i was playing uh, a few years back mm-hmm. and and so i got stage passes to go see him play right and i know most people in his band at least i knew at that time most people who played with him so they were all my friends so i came backstage to greet my friends and say hi and i had a new big Ben album out at that time so i gave everybody a copy and you know because i was giving all my friends a copy it would look and sound kind of you know rude not to give him a copy right i gave him a copy out of like being polite and, and, you know, not, you know, not being rude and we didn't even exchange words. It was like, hi, oh, thanks. And then I went away never thought about it, you know, never thought he would actually listen to it. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks later uh, I get a message from him on my, my Facebook page, if that's still a thing, I don't know if anybody does anything there anymore, but, you know, he put a public note for me there saying that he loved the record. And and that's how we connected, started talking about doing something together because that's basically what he said, you know, I would love to do something with you sometime. So it was kind of like this shocking moment of, you know. So did you write the album with hopes that he would actually play on it? I actually wrote that piece for him. Okay. You know? So every piece of the album is written for the soloist. So the, the idea of the album was to, first I invited all the soloists to collaborate. And then I ha- we had a long conversation. I had a long conversation with each one of them via Zoom, by the way. <laughs> um, and it was this... It was in the middle of a pandemic, basically, when we were having those conversations. And it was sort of like an interview, a conversation on on the idea of moving to America, becoming a jazz musician here, you know. And so I used that information or that conversation as inspiration to write the pieces, which were tailored to each one of them and based on the conversations that we had.
0: Okay. Well, everyone, the one other thing you need to do is, if you're interested, check out his YouTube channel because he has some of the videos of these people performing the yes, tracks. And I assume those are the recording sessions, correct? Yes, okay. that's correct. Well, I like them because you Thank all know you. I'm a nerd. <laughs> but yes. <Thank> <laughs> so one other thing I would have to ask about this. So in this day and age, in 2023, the amount of money it costs to do a big band album, didn't this kill
1: the budget. <laughs> well, here's when you learn uh, that an artist has to be very, very good at applying for grants. You know, <laughs> I have, uh, I have a very, very skillful. Um, you know, I I apply for grants all the time. You know, grants to perform, grants to to record, to write music. It's it's a huge part of the arts. Um, you know, being an artist is that there's money out there. It's hard to get, but if you, uh, if you develop the skills, the writing skills and, you know, understand how to create a good project and compelling argument and budgets and things like that, you know, I've been very, very lucky to be able to fund my projects that way. Okay.
0: Without giving any of your secrets, what advice would you give to somebody trying to get a grant? do a project?
1: I would say a couple of big things. One is have a clear, enticing project. Don't write a grant saying basically, oh, I just want to write some music, you know. Like you have to have an idea behind it. You have to have something that makes people pay attention to it, you know. And then the other one is like be very, very clear with your timelines and your budget. You know, make sure that everything's accounted for. And so people don't think you're kind of fuzzy on the details, you know, because then they're not going to give you money if they don't think, yeah, you can they think you're going to run out with the money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So did they give you a deadline when you actually
1: got the grant? Well, it depends on, you know, the a lot of those, like the, this last grant that I got, is it was called a residency. And a lot of those, are like a year-long project, you know. So the, the, from the moment I got the grant to the moment I finished recording and mixing and mastering everything was about a year. But I was already planning the project before, you know. I had a lot of the interviews done and I had the ideas. I, I didn't have everything, but I had enough time once I got the grant to make sure that uh, that I could get everything done rehearsed record and everything but but you know it was it was a push it was definitely a push oh that helps man
0: because that's one thing if some of these people email me asking how do you get an album going i pretty much tell them they got a second job so you just gave them an alternate (laughs) answer so thank you for that
1: second job is 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 another way way, that's what i did it's like
0: okay i gotta get more hours so i could put money aside to do an album
1: well, my first album, I, I funded with playing gigs, you know, teaching music and playing gigs. And then I, I was able to sell that one to a label and then I was able to fund the second one. And, you know, it's 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 how things go. You know, you got to start somewhere. Yes.
0: OK, so at least in the real world, when you're actually performing this, does it have the same results as it is on your album?
1: Well, when we perform, a lot of the times we perform, the way I wrote was that it could be played with just the ensemble, right? Mm-hmm. So the solo parts, the, the guest parts, are sort of embedded into the ensemble parts. So if we do have the guests, certain parts of the ensemble don't get played. So, so for example, let me be a little more uh, clear. So, for example, if Paquito comes and plays with us, my second alto player is not going to play the clarinet parts that he plays or the alto solo that he plays, but he's going to play the other stuff. So if I don't have the guests, I still have all the people I need to play the music and have the exact same result as in the recording.
0: Okay, that's a lot more planned than I expected. Good, un- good. That's really good composition writing. I give you that.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Another question I'll ask on that then, is it too
1: dry live? No, I mean, it it really all depends on the venue, though. I mean, a band that size, if you put it in a room with good acoustics, the, the sheer reverberation of sound makes everything sound very full, you know, it's it's very, very hard to make a band that big sound dry, really. But there's also, you know, some amplification and things like that that you can always, you know, manipulate a little bit the the environment. But no, we're we're playing um, soon in in uh, cultural center in in Massachusetts, in Florence, Massachusetts, called the uh, Bombics, and they, they, it's a church, so it's got the perfect acoustics. You know, you put a band that size, it carries through the entire room. You know. Um, so most concert halls are actually designed to give you that wetness that you need. but what about nice. outdoors? Outdoors is always a challenge for anything you play outdoors. you know it all depends on the sound system and how they can make it project forward. You know outdoors is a little harder, but it's possible it it can it can work, okay. So
0: let's just say there's a kid graduating from Juilliard right now in composition, right? And he actually wants to go that path of writing big band music.
1: What would you suggest to them? Well, I I would imagine he would be already writing that at school, you know. But even if he hasn't, I would suggest to connect with all his friends from school and try to put some reading se- sessions together you know so that's how i started my big band you know i called my a, a bunch of people i knew and say hey i have some charts i would like to read through would you guys be you know interested in doing a rehearsal and that's how things kind of started you know was that more um, at yeah, was that more at manhattan or amherst when you started doing that well i I started playing in a lot of big bands since I moved to the U.S., but I played in a lot of projects at Manhattan School Mm -hmm. of Music, some at at New England Conservatory in Boston. So I was, I had friends from different sections of my life, you know, and then I knew a lot of people in Boston. My my band is mostly based in Boston, you know, because that's where most people are and a few people travel there. So... So that's where I held the first rehearsals and that's where, where we rehearse normally. So most people live in the Boston area, you know. And But, you know, I played in many projects when I lived in New York. I lived in New York for about 10 years. So that also had, you know, it's, it's, you have to find a place where you have a good community and people who are going to put the time into learning your music and things like that. What is the worst thing about putting them together? Logistics is the, always logistics? the worst. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I can't do that day. Oh, I can't do that day. Nowadays I, I I send everything like months and months and months in advance. You know? And I have I know one day of the week that most people can do. And we, we rehearse with a project or gigs in mind so they know that they have to make the rehearsals if they want to get the gigs. You know, so and if, and if they can't, and if they can't, then I have to get somebody else. You know, <laughs> you have to get a sub, who's gonna get your gig And your rehearsals. You know, the the gigs and the projects come with the rehearsals; they're mandatory. You know, I can't just. I I understand that this music is too hard to no, nobody can pull it off site. Reading or I, it, that's one thing I did rehearsals. like about it. It
0: wasn't like stri- people eat. When you listen to the album, people, you'll understand more of why I'm asking those type of questions. Because it's literally not something, like he said, I could sit down and read through it unless you got, you know, A-plus level
1: reading. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I know very, very few few people that I can think of that could read that book down, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, no problem. So... What were there any outside influences that you had when you or just in general in your music? I like I know you have an African-American music studies degree. I see that probably played in fact there in there from Brazil. Maybe that's also a part of it. But is there anything else that I'm missing that stands out to you, at least when you're thinking of composing or writing?
1: Well, yeah, I I think that first first of all, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of things. First, first, I think that as musicians or composers or improvisers or, you know, we we always come from somewhere, you know, we always have influences. You can trace the influences of every composer and every performer down to the people they listen to or copied and things like that. So that that first of all that I'll put it that out there you know and I'll tell you who are some of the people who influenced me the most as a composer right mm-hmm. so I'm a big fan of uh, of Gil Evans as a composer arranger uh Ellington is one of my favorites and uh, there's somebody who is not as well known uh by many, George Russell, who I think was incredible, and I had the opportunity to study with him when I was at NEC. He was still alive, and, you know, I spent a lot of time playing his music under his conducting, so that that really influenced the way I heard large ensemble music. I also like classical music, and I think that influences the way I write certain things, you know, um, the way I think of the big band more as being an orchestra. Um, and then there's there's also Brazilian influences. Obviously, uh, Hermeto Pascual is one of my influences, Egberto Gismonti, and of course, uh, Jobim, some of Jobim's music was orchestrated by Klaus Ogerman. So that, that was also a big influence growing up and listening to that, you know? But I like to think that I actually found my own language within all those influences. And I'm finding a way that is, of course, comes from all of those people, but are not exactly all of those people, right? There's a couple of more American writers that I really love um, to listen to. And I think they've influenced me. Vince Mendoza, uh, Maria Schneider, um, and Oliver Nelson is another one that I can... Think of um, I can't. Let me see if I'm forgetting anybody major um, right now. I mean, for large ensemble, those are the people I can think of. Uh, but but you know, I think you know. Obviously, I love Debussy, Ravel. Um, big fan of Stravinsky and and that kind of you know Bartok and those guys. So that kind of language really. I think influences me, but also I I love to listen to music of Latin America, you know, Afro-Cuban music and African music and things like that. So that that has all played a role in the way I, I write my music. Okay. Well, you've been in America
0: for 25 plus years, closer to 30. Yes. What is something you realized or noticed about the jazz scene recently? positive
1: and negative well i think i think is it's incredible the amount of stuff that is actually happening in the jazz scene you know i think there's lots of different things that there's been lots of different genres going on like within jazz for a long long time you know but one of the things that i notice most now is that there's a there's a huge um hip-hop you know kind of influence in some people in some uh new artists especially do you like and that i like that i think you know i mean i don't see it exactly in my music even though i've have borrowed some of that too but i think that it is important i think I like think some I of it sounds horrible. Before.
0: I think a good amount of it sounds horrible.
1: Yeah. I'll be the first one to say it. <laughs> you know, some of it doesn't, doesn't, there's not everything that is out there that I like, and I'm, I'm sure not everybody's going to like my music, you know, but I feel like that there's people who are able to combine other influences in a really good way, pop influences and, and hip hop and funk influences into the jazz scene and I think that's a that's the normal thing you know that's the way and then there's the people like me who come from like a latin american background who might be bringing that in I feel like everybody's looking into ways to hone in the public in in and I think the the rhythmic aspect of what we play is a huge part of that in the sense that People maybe don't connect so much with swing anymore. So people connect with other rhythms that are more in you know in more contemporary
0: per se. Yes, that um, I do agree with you on. It says some of the times when they I see them try to fuse afrobeats, hip hop, or reggae into a quote unquote jazz album. It's like, why did you do this?
1: I also think that it has to be done with the right people and it has to be done um, with, with respect to the tradition, you know. It's not just because you want to do it. You need to be able to to know deeply what those rhythms are about, what those grooves are about. And I'm not criticizing anyone by saying that. I'm just saying that that's going to work if you have the right people to do it and if you have the right vision but as a gimmick it doesn't work you know i don't i don't believe in gimmicks you know i don't think those work musically or artistically but you know it, there's there's good music and bad music as ellington and and those guys were always say you know it's not a certain genre is better than others there's good music and bad music music that's well done Done the right way in music that is not so good in whatever <laughs> genre or style you can think of. You know, there's plenty of bad Brazilian records, and there's great Brazilian music records, and that is true. You know, it's just bad honored enough to only seem to get the good ones. Right, right. <laughs> you know, but but what I'm saying is that's how that's how it is. You know, there's people who really have the depth and can really do great music and people who are just not quite there, you know, but nowadays it's a lot easier to have a record out because the technology evolved in Which the Which is good and bad.
0: I agree on that. Yes.
1: Good and bad. Exactly. There's always a good side and a bad side forever to everything, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think.
0: Cool, sir. So be honest with me, if you could change one thing in the jazz or music industry, just in general, what is it that you would change? Only one thing? <laughs> oh, <I> mean, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Only one. Well, <laughs> I think I I think it's very complicated because I think the industry is really, of course, driven by popular popular demand, I guess. But I think one of the biggest problems is that jazz lost a lot of media power. You know, like a lot of uh, and if you don't if you don't actually put music, certain music on the radio, on the TV, how how are people going to be interested in listening to it? You know, so that's that's one part of it. The other part of it is I think that musicians are not getting compensated properly, especially from streaming and, and things like that. So you know that i would change those two things more okay. more compensation on the sense that every time somebody listens to my music on the internet or whatever that i get more money for it and also that we get more um you know more places to that play our music you know more uh, media okay you know, so support. the streaming part that
0: one hurts because even when i talk to other up and coming jazz artists they don't even want to pay for of uh, streaming services but they use them mm. so it's like you're using the free version but then you're complaining about the money
1: right yeah so, i think it's it's I'll, a huge part of why i don't use spotify you know no i, I pay you. for my subscription i pay for for um you know, uh, w- the service that I use, I'm mm-hmm. not going to no, give, give them a, a free advertising, <laughs> but I pay every month for it. You know, uh, yeah. it's a lot harder to buy CDs now. Uh-huh. And and I don't subscribe to the new LP thing because it's not environmental and I don't necessarily. Oh, you're one of
0: those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I don't necessarily think the sound is much better unless you spend like $5,000 on equipment. No, I don't think it sounds bad at all, to be honest. But so but I understand it's kind of cool to go back to it, you know. And part of me wish we had never left in a way. But what I'm saying is I, I'm not going to go back to it. I I will put my money into subscribing for for music that I'll listen to in my phone. I don't like to listen to music for free because I don't think it's, as an artist, you know. I mean, it's a horrible thing, but I see people that.
0: doing that a tad bit too much for my liking. Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: And and that's one of the reasons why we're all in this boat is be, people can't complain about something that they don't, you know. It's, it's, it's not just in music, you know. People are like, oh, the environment, but then they, you know do all this unenvironmental stuff, (laughs) right? That that is 100%
0: true. Uh, Okay. (laughs) We're not going to go down that wormhole. So yes, we're going to leave that part. But (laughs) in terms of the media and the radio and all that stuff, do you think it's because some of your compositions are longer than the traditional
1: three to five minutes? Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. And I've been told that before. But my answer is always like, that's what comes out. I have an idea uh, and normally that's what comes out. I've been trying to write shorter pieces, but they don't come out that way. And and I feel like there's, you know, it's a price to pay, but you know, I don't see my music as necessarily music that is going to be um, prone for radio anyways, even if it was three or five minutes long. You know, so what do you that had? Well, OK, so if you don't
0: see a poem for radio and I understand you're trying to cut it down more. What are you
1: thinking then in terms of just getting it promoted? Well, I, I do. I think that there are jazz radio stations and those actually do play. It doesn't matter. You know, I've, I get enough. I get enough attention from those. But. You know, of course, I can see how a DJ might think, "Oh, that uh, a five-minute tune is better suited for my public," but that's, but that's also a matter of the reason why we end up where we are, because we are always underestimating the public. You know, so oh, my public you doesn't think you're have the underestimating age, the but public. Well, no, here's no, no what cool. I. Th- this is I, like I think this. it's. I think it's. I think it's a, it, a self fulfilling prophecy. If you only give people five minutes tunes, they're not gonna be able to listen to an eight minute tune, right? But if you give them a, eight minute tunes, some might be able to listen to, and over time, maybe more people will uh, be able to listen to. But I, I think it's just. It's like I'm gonna use a, an example that is not musical. Go ahead. If your kid doesn't want to eat broccoli and you don't keep on trying, your kid's never going to eat broccoli. Correct? Okay, fair. Okay. Your kid might not think broccoli is good, but broccoli is very good. But it takes some time to get used to appreciating broccoli. Otherwise, you, you could just eat mac and cheese for the rest of your life.
0: That's funny because my sister was literally complaining about that with her kid right yesterday so that I'm is actually very good time on today. that
1: comment <laughs> okay i still fight with my youngest kid is a lot pickier to eat than my older kid but we don't you know it's like you have to people need to be i feel like if you are not exposed to things it narrows your opinions and appreciation for things and it could be food it could be art it could be music it could be anything. Okay. Architecture, you know. Well, my thing is that I'll say
0: on that whole thing is like the fact that we have jazz stations does us a lot more harm than we realize.
1: Yeah, there's jazz not, stations, but there's not, also stations that have jazz hours. Right? That's also doing bad. It should be just
0: mixed in there.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I, you know, philosophically speaking, I agree with you. Okay, that's all I'm saying from that part. Now, is that realistic? No. (laughs) Right. Because realistic is not. Yes. You know, people would turn off the radio. Well said. (laughs) People listening to J Lo will turn off the radio when my music comes on.
0: (laughs) I I respect the Odyssey. Uh, Really, I'll give you that. I can't even pick on you. Okay, so if I give you a radio block, two hours, how would you program it?
1: Uh, meaning, not my music, obviously, right? Yeah, but
0: in theory, I, I, you're not a musician. You're a DJ who just right, likes absolutely.
1: music. Yes. Well, well, there's so many ways to go about it. You know, I mean, you could do, you could do so many different. Shows you could do a show where you show the evolution of jazz from the perspective of a specific instrument, or maybe through the perspective of comp or big bands. You know, like you start with the early big bands and then you get into the modern big bands. That would be a, a really cool show to do, I would say. Um, let's
0: just say it's during prime time. So you have a huge audience you could gain. So you could gain all those 15-year-olds to 25-year-olds. Right. The ones that actually buy the tickets. Like okay. Taylor Swift concerts.
1: Sure. Right. So I would probably start with something. Um, I, would, I would try to connect things that are, let's say, contemporary to things that are older, you know? So let's say if, I would start with some artists that they might connect with and I would actually then introduce the people, those people come from, you know, so basically take a, a backwards story, a history trip, you know? So let me, let me think of an example. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of people who, who like Kamasi Washington, for example. So if, if, somebody connects with him, then I'll think about what are some of his influences. Is he influenced by, you know, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, or if he's influenced by Coltrane in a certain level, or if he's influenced by, and I would try to bring some of that, you know, or maybe even some African, more African music, you know, not jazz related you know, afropop or something like that. But it but I would try to connect the contemporary things to to its origins and maybe because that's how I got into jazz, to be honest with you. You know, I got into jazz because my my cousin mm-hmm. loved the the British band The Police, you know, Sting. And we used to listen to Synchronicity. Oh yeah, right? two Sting Goddess come out here. Both of them destroyed me pretty good i must say and and then so, <laughs> so so i was into you know that was the music that played in the radio right and then my my cousin one day we were hanging out and she's like you know i bought this sting album i really don't like do you want it and it was bring on the night ah, okay. you know, the, the, the live double album yes and I fell in love with that album, and that. And I took it to my. I was starting to play saxophone, and I took it to my teacher, and he's like, "Hey, that's that's Branford Marsalis uh, playing saxophone, and that's Omar Hakim playing drums, and that's they're all jazz musicians." And he started telling me all these different records that those guys had done, and then so I started getting into jazz backwards, you know, through the contemporary players, and then from them, you know, from like. Listening to Brantford, I started listening to Sonny Rollins and Coltrane and Dexter Gordon and all the people who came before. So so I feel like that, that was my way into jazz was like this back backwards history, you know, and that's all because they played with Sting, you know, who played on the radio. So maybe that would be a good way to uh, do a TV show, a uh, uh, radio
0: show. I honestly can't disagree with you on that (laughs) because Bradford is one of the reasons I really got into jazz because he was doing a whole bunch of other stuff with other artists. Yeah. So I do agree. It's just that we pop artists today. So let's just use someone like Taylor Swift again. And you have she has a song Bad Blood. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you're going to incorporate jazz artists onto a track like that.
1: That probably not hers. But, for example, you know, if you don't go too far back, Beyonce had a whole female band, right? And a bunch of them were jazz artists. Okay, true. So you could take that, you know, and you could use that as a, as a springboard into into jazz you know because half of that band were jazz artists so you could take any of those names that is true and they have jazz records and you could you could trace it backwards from Beyonce which in my opinion is more interesting than than uh, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift. <laughs> well yeah those are the two
0: probably biggest female artists right now right, and i normally right. pick on beyonce so i try to be different
1: but good point <laughs> You know, but I joke about that all the time. One time I was giving a lecture to a group of people who were not just uh, appreci- you know like they were just taking a class mm-hmm. in school, you know in college, and they had to take a class on something though they took a class on history of jazz, and I was telling them how you know Louis Armstrong or Ellington, they were the beyonces of their time, you know they were the huge pop acts of their time you know they were the people who sold most records of their time okay so are jazz artists still living in the past uh, i guess we're living in the present but we still miss uh, we're we still miss the popularity of the past let's put it this way Oh, you're so PC. I give you that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think some people live in the past. Some people play the music from 1945. I mean, and that's, you know, if it makes you happy, who am I to say no to that? You know, like when we started talking, I don't see myself doing that. I love playing that music. But when I put an album under my name, I want to put an album that reflects who I am in the moment, you know? so but some people you know i love i play this swing band gigs all the time i walk in there with my horns and i sight read the books you know and it's so much fun but it's so much fun it's like a um you know it's a it's traveling in history and being able to make this music that i listen to in records but it's it's not who i am Personally, when I record. Do you think that holds back the music, though? Um, well, not, not for other people, you know. I mean, one of the people I play with, mm-hmm. uh, he's completely devoted to that music. That's the music for him, you know. Like, he loves that music. He lives that music every day. So I feel like it's right for him, you know. And I know people who, I know people like that who love that music so much they dress like they're in 1935, you know. And it's absolutely awesome. I mean, who am I to say? I left Brazil and moved here to play jazz, you know. And a lot of people can say, oh, that's not your music. You weren't born there, you know. But I think that your music is the music that you love the most and you dedicate your life to and and work your butt off to play as well as possible you know okay so harder question on that then all right how do you get people to show up to those performances lots of interviews lots of social media you know i guess i could say lots of praying <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> okay I okay i Don't have much on you today. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you got to do what you got to do. You know, I have a following. I I have a constant presence in social media and I reach out to radio stations. I reach out to newspapers. I I have, you know, so when I have a big event coming up or something, you know, I, I work my channels as best as I can. I can't go to people's house, knock on the door and grab them and take them there. You know, if they don't want to come, they don't want to come. You know, I feel like there's there's we had a a very interesting situation right after the pandemic when people could start going out again. There was a surge in, in people coming out to see live music. I don't know if we're eventually that's dying out again. But I think people had taken that for granted that uh, so much that they felt like they really wanted to go listen to some live music. But, you know, we tend to uh, go in waves and then pretty soon people will start taking that for granted again, who knows?
0: Yeah, that I also agree with you on. So, okay. If you could go back to your 18 year old self, would you talk yourself out of being a jazz artist, musician?
1: I don't know. I mean, I can't complain, you know. I mean, we could always complain, of course. Mm-hmm. But I've I've uh I've done a lot of stuff. I've been you know, I I'm happy with what I've done uh, in terms of like, you know, I've been able to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would talk me myself out of being a jazz musician, but I might give myself a few pointers on how to not waste time, you know, but, you know, like I, what I, the problem is this, you know, I teach 18 year olds, you know, in college and there's, if, if they're not ready to learn, they're not ready to learn. You can say whatever you want. You know what I mean? It's like you learn on your own in a way, you know, when you're ready to learn, you will learn. I had amazing students who didn't want to do the things I suggested and then two years later, they come back and they knock on my door and they're like, you were right, I'm doing those things now. Thank you for telling me, you know? You mean one of those? Uh learning from records, transcribing solos from records, which is a huge part of understanding improvisation and understanding. And then some kids are like, oh, why should I do this? I don't understand. I don't want to do it, whatever. And then two years later, the knock on my door is like, you were right, man. I'm doing this now. And I'm like, I'm going so much faster, you know, I'm getting so much better, much quicker, because I'm doing the things you tell- you told me to do, you know. Well, I'm practicing my scales or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like when you're young, you have a tendency to waste a lot of time out of immaturity sometimes. So but at the same time, if you're not mature, me telling you what to do is not gonna change that, you know? Or well, maybe time is a surplus for them at that age. Oh yeah, that's why the that's why you can waste say the it. <laughs> the the youth is wasted on the young, right? And I would say, just as a joke, if I could tell my 18 years old self to do something, they would say, learn the acoustic bass. You would get a lot more gigs. Ooh. Than a saxophone player.
0: Uh that's probably the realest statement I heard in a while. That's true. Oh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, bass players play all the time. All they the time. All the
0: time. Especially yeah. if you're good. And, uh, I noticed if he said good. acoustic people. Just notice that. Yeah.
1: I, I I love the bass. I, lo- I wish I could play the bass. Honestly, if I could go back to my 14-year-old self, I would say, dude, don't pick up the saxophone. Pick up a bass. <laughs>
0: Okay. So for your next project, if you could have any artist on the album, who would it be? Wow. That's um, okay. one that's alive right now. Okay. okay Don't okay. give me nobody from
1: 1940. Okay. <laughs> Man, dude, um, that would be like dreaming really high, but of course I would like, I mean, I would love to record with Herbie Hancock. And, and Ron Carter, I guess, you know. Okay. Most of the other people I would like to, but they're, they're not around anymore, you know. But I would have loved to. Um, I mean, there was one person I would have loved to have played with was uh, Alvin Jones. He's probably my favorite drummer of all times in jazz, of course, you know, not considering the other, other styles. But, yeah, that would have been... Amazing, you know, pretty much the, the the rhythm sections of Wayne Shorter in the in the 60s would have all do for me. <laughs> that's understandable.
0: <laughs> okay, well, sir, I'm looking forward towards your next album. Everyone, please check it Thank out. You. you see what I mean by you can't sight read this. Uh, okay. uh, I mean, of course, you're going to find out one percenter that's going to email me and say I could do that. I get it. But the heavy majority... We'll have problems with that. <laughs> well so can you please tell them your social media, your website, how to contact you, etc. Sure. So my
1: my website is you could you could access me two ways. Felipe Sales, which is f e l-i-p e s a l-l e s dot com. Or the easier one is my last name, Sales, S-A-L-L-E-S, and the word jazz altogether. SalizJazz.com. I'm also on um, Facebook under Salas Jazz and Felipe Salas, and I'm also under uh, on Instagram as Salas Jazz. So all of those, if you look for Salas Jazz, you will find me. Okay. <laughs> well,
0: like I said, sir, thank you for coming on. It was enjoyable. You kind of stumped me on some ones. Not thank the worst you. ones I had. Okay, people, not the worst one, but yes. <laughs> And everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on Jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ImprovExchange.